The latest census news throws a wrench into the Illinois remap, as well as into 2022 campaign plans. And it's time for our weekly conversation with Crane's residential real estate reporter, Dennis Rodkin, for a look at news in the local housing market. Chicago area home sellers made $47,000. That's up $10,000 from the $37,000 that people were collecting on average in 2019. I'm Amy Guth, and this is Crane's Daily Gist. It's Thursday, January 28th. When it comes to a professional like your doctor or lawyer, you want someone who knows you well. Wintrust believes you should have the same relationship with your banker, someone you can call directly and know they'll understand your concerns. Thousands of local business owners called their Wintrust banker when they needed Paycheck Protection Program loans. They called, Wintrust answered, and helped more than 11,000 local businesses secure funding. Learn more at Wintrust.com slash Daily Gist. Member FDIC. Hi there, and welcome to Crane's Daily Gist Live, brought to you by Wintrust. I'm here with Crane's resident real estate reporter, Dennis Rodkin, as I am every Thursday. Hi, Dennis. Welcome back. Amy, how are you? I'm well, thank you. You know, living the dream, broadcasting from home, doing the things. <laughs> yeah. We all love this year, don't we? This we do. Now nearly into our second year. It has it has made us grow professionally and challenge ourselves to, I don't know, I'm trying here. <laughs> anyway, we are gathered here today to talk about residential real estate. So let's get right to that. This is a story that you wrote recently that I thought was very interesting about how much sellers profited on their sales. Tell me about this. This is a report from Adam. Adam uh, is a California-based property information service, and they actually they track these sorts of things. I should say this is a gross figure. This is not net. So uh, what Adam reported is that on average, Chicago area home sellers made $47,000 comparing their original purchase price with their sale price. That's 2020. That's up $10,000 from the $37,000 that people were collecting on average in 2019. It's a nice big jump. And again, it's gross. It's uh, just comparing what I paid for the house and what I got when I sold it. It doesn't include any uh, rehab I did, replacing filters in the furnace or any of that. Uh, But it's a good benchmark for comparing not only uh, how we are doing year to year, but how we do compared to other cities. Homeownership is in one way an investment. Many people claim that you shouldn't expect to make money on a home sale, but for more than a, for a couple of generations, that really was the model. So, how much is my investment returning? Uh, again, our average in um, 2020 was forty-seven thousand dollars, thirty-seven thousand the year before, and we had only been positive for about five years. There were, uh, I think, there were four consecutive years where what Adam reported for Chicago was a negative figure, which was to say the average not individual sales, but the average uh, return on your home was a loss of as much as I think the the lowest was $20,000 as the average. So what's happened is, as you know, as we've talked about endlessly, 2020 really changed the real estate market in many ways and supercharged a lot of what was going on. Prices rose so fast that it, one, brought a lot of people up from underwater, and two, landed us at a spot where we're we're averaging about $47,000 in proceeds, which is a nice figure that makes it possible for me to 
when I sell afford that step up to the next home? Because of course, while the price of my existing home is rising, so is the price of the home I want to get into. And I need a big nut in order to buy that. So we're at about average, uh, we're at about an average of $47,000 in 2020. There you have it. Well, I th- again, I think that's going to be another thing to look at um, with a little more time, you know, behind it, like look at that another, you know, six months or year out to kind of see the story of what home sales will tell for us. Yeah, I think it's true. And I think just the fact that in the very recent past, we were averaging negative proceeds on our sales. Uh, so the fact that we're where we are feels really good. Yeah, yeah. For sure. All right, let's shift a little bit to uh, to renters and uh, a story about how landlords are pushing back against the Cook County renter protection proposal. Two Cook County commissioners devised a set of protections for renters, which also includes some protections for landlords. And uh, this came up before a committee earlier this week, and it goes before the full Cook County board today, and we'll find out whether it passes. The idea was, what they said is, in Chicago, renters have had a strict RLTO, Rental Tenant Landlord Ordinance, uh, for more than 30 years, I think it's 36 years, with all kinds of protections of how your security deposit is banked and how much notice you need to receive and and, uh, whether whether an eviction can happen without the court. The answer is no. Um, But in Cook County, in suburban Cook County, there was no such protection except in a couple of municipalities, Mount Prospect, Evanston, and then Oak Park has some protections, but not at the level of the other two. There are nearly 250,000 rental households that aren't covered by any of those, Chicago or those suburban uh, municipalities I mentioned, that have no protection. And one of the uh, commissioners said that what he found is people will, their stuff gets thrown out of their apartment. They get locked out. they get charged huge fees for missing, for being late on the rent, that sort of thing. And there are no controls on that. There are no rules that govern exactly how much the fee can be, that sort of thing, which is all available to Chicago renters. So they've devised a package of incentive, uh, I'm sorry, a package of ordinances that would protect both renters and landlords. Landlords have some protections as well, including one they mentioned to me is uh, that came in from the landlord groups is if I'm a renter and I'm complaining about certain circumstances in the building that I could sue over safety and other sorts of project uh, uh, problems, there was no chance for the real for the landlord to cure that. There was no chance for the landlord to fix that before getting sued. And now there is sort of a grace period where I make the complaint. My landlord has a certain amount of time to respond to say, yeah, I'm going to do it, and here's my plan. And then if that doesn't happen, then a lawsuit proceeds, et cetera. So both sides uh, receive some protections. But the idea is this this is not necessarily pandemic-related protections. But right now, the commissioners and, and some rental groups mentioned said to me, um, housing, we need housing security more than at almost any time, because if I'm locked out of my apartment, and have nowhere to go, this is a far more uh, dangerous time for that to happen in than previous years. I'm glad you made that that last point because it seems like so much of the conversation we've had in the last year have been specifically around like 
eviction moratoriums and things that were very directly traced to the moment we're in with the pandemic. But I mean, that's a great point that it is tied to it. I mean, everything is right. Everything's kind of colored by the pandemic, whether we like it or not. Um, And I think too, like giving the landlords the opportunity to cure something that has been surfaced by a tenant is, is kind of interesting because I feel like in a lot of past reporting, that seems to be where it escalates pretty quickly. Yeah, it is, and and um, that and the uh, the way your security deposit is banked um, often lead to a lot of tension because there are some very very specific rules in the city for how a security deposit is handled, so that I, the landlord, cannot be profiting on your security deposit while you rent from me for let's say five years. Um, in the county provisions, they've sort of made changes that keep that from ever becoming a problem. So yeah, the idea is let's make sure that both sides can just sort of get along in the process. If if I'm a bad tenant, I don't have to get unduly harsh treatment by my landlord. Well, speaking of uh, people fighting in the places that they live, (laughs) you like that segue? You like that? That's a good segue, Amy. You're you're good at (laughs) that. I took it. I saw it and I took it. Um, Let's talk about two neighbors in Wicker Park that are fighting over altering uh, this historic property. This is is kind of an interesting one. So I wrote about this house when it was for sale last summer. I remember. Uh, Built in the mid-1880s, and it's on a very large lot. The, The house, what you're seeing on your screen on the left is the house. And that empty space to the right is, uh, while it is a separate lot with a separate identification uh, in the land system, it is a piece of this property. Uh, And it was sold in uh, the summer to a man who I now have heard from those sellers. I hadn't by the time we posted the story, but we've since heard from the sellers that this buyer said, oh, I love this yard. I'm going to keep the yard the way it is, and I'm going to add in the back. Well, at some point, his plans apparently changed. And he's planning a, um, an addition there between his house on the left and the new one on the right. Again, that land on the right is his. And it's been designed by a, a, a historically sensitive architecture firm who've done these sorts of things. They've done what a lot of people do now uh, with when building attached to a historical building. The new one will look, will borrow a lot of visual cues from all the old buildings in the neighborhood, but it won't touch the the old building it will have sort of a glass panel so mm. that you can so that it is one structure and you walk across the floor inside but it looks but it doesn't try to say we're both historical it says one is historical and one is new you can see that in the image we're showing now there's sort of a glass panel in between anyway it's about 3000 square feet of addition on land that has been empty since at least the 1880s probably before that as well but we know that it was empty from the time this the existing house was built. It's in the Wicker Park Historic District, which in its landmark declaration by the city in 1991 is described not only by the houses and, and other historical buildings in it, but by the green spaces. There are a lot of houses built on very, in, in this historical part of Wicker Park, built on larger lots. They might have a side porch that looks out into their yard. Uh, but they were built with clearly with the big yard in mind. And so the historic designation, the landmark designation for the neighborhood describes it as, as sort of lending to the character. And some of the neighbors, uh, who two of whom I spoke to live on Hoyne, they talk about how that green space, while it may not be yours, while it's private property and you can't go into it, 
it adds to your um, feeling, it adds to the charm of the neighborhood. It gives you something to look at as you walk through. So the question is, does this addition uh, intrude on the streetscape in such a way that it breaks up the landmarking of the neighborhood or that it violates, I should say, the landmarking of the neighborhood. So the neighbors are have written to the city's landmarks department to say, we want you to turn this down because of what I just described. It would interfere with and disrupt the land the landmark streetscape. Uh, but the the cell, I'm sorry, the homeowner is a guy who has built a lot. He builds affordable housing, develops affordable housing. He's done some other historical work. And according to him, uh, this passed all requirements. He It was lawyered. He had a historic preservation uh, consultant look at it. And according to him, what he's described or what he's designed or what he has been designed for him fits all statutes, all ordinances, and is allowable. So the question will be, does the Landmarks Commission, well, which side does the Landmarks Commission come down on? Do they say, yes, it is allowable, or do they say, well, you need to preserve if not preserve uh, all of the green space, you need to preserve more than you have in your plan. This is gonna be an interesting one to see in part because one of the neighbors said, you know, there are all these other lots in uh, Wicker Park that have similar, not exactly like this, but similar configurations where there's a lot of green space you could build on and it's an appealing neighborhood where people wanna live. So why wouldn't some of these other spaces be given up to new construction if you let one go how many more do you let go in the future? So we're going to need to watch this and see what happens. Yeah, that will be interesting. I mean, do you think that the neighbors have a shot at, at you know, repealing this? I have no idea, honestly. Yeah. I mean, I, I thought the, they, they certainly have a lot of support. Uh, our article, they put on Facebook and on LinkedIn, and they wrote to me and said they've had a few hundred com or about a hundred comments and things like that. So clearly um, there are people who are supportive of what they're doing. However, you know, we have private property rights in Chicago and in the United States that may prevail over that. So it's going to be, I don't know which way it will go. It will be interesting. I mean, especially since the homeowner went through, uh, you know, such painstaking steps to make sure that it met all these requirements and, and all of this kind of stuff. That'll be interesting. Well, let's talk about this place on Prairie Avenue, a mansion that sold for a record price. It's kind of a remnant of the South Loops, kind of this heyday in the, the, the mansion district. I have been in this house and it's very, very beautiful. It has interesting ties to Chicago journalism. It's a lovely house. I, I've kind of always secretly wanted that to be my house. So I'm sad to see that it's sold, but I'm glad that it's in good hands. Tell me about it. Well, this is news to me. I thought you were the buyer. Nobody would tell me who the buyer was, and I assumed it was you. I wish. Uh, <laughs> yeah. So this was built in 1870 or 1871 and is is spectacular. It's a 27-room house. It's from that heyday of Prairie Avenue when Pullmans and Fields and Armors and others were building mansions. Apparently, there were over 50 mansions in that few square blocks when this was the most fashionable neighborhood in the city. Theodore Dreiser wrote scenes that were set here. Um, the Glessner House is the best known relic of it. And the Glessner House is tied, the, the fate of the Glessner House is tied to this one. Glessner House was um, falling apart in the 70s and was possibly going to be demolished. And the residents of this house, Wilbert Hasbrook and his wife, who's Marilyn Hasbrook, lived here. They were architecture uh, enthusiasts. They had a, a bookstore on the first floor of this house. They were instrumental 
uh, with other people in saving Glessner House, which was sort of a turning point in Chicago's history of preservation. This is near Glessner House and has been residential since the Hasbrooks moved in in the early 70s or the late 60s. Prior to that, it had been a publishing house and other things. It went the way the South Loop did. It went from beautiful, fashionable, Gilded Age neighborhood to pretty run down. Uh, and so there were publishing houses and others in here, then the Hasbrooks. And in the 70s, they sold it to a couple who were journalists. That couple passed it down to two women who are sisters. One of them is a journalist, Tracy Bame, the publisher of the Chicago Reader, founder of Windy City Times and other things. Their mother, the two sisters' mother and her husband owned the house first, passed it down to Tracy and her sister, who have been, unfortunately, they've been trying to sell it for about a dozen years. It's hard to sell something like this. Uh, their price was higher than 2.3 for quite a while, but it sold this week. This is the highest any single family home in the South Loop has ever sold for. There are some condos that have sold for over 3 million, but those are you know built in the 21st century, glittery, fancy, very different from this. Particular news about this that I thought was important is it is going to remain residential. It has zoning in part because of what happened to the South Loop in previous decades, and in part because it had been a, it had, had a bookstore on the first floor, and uh, the Bames had a uh, gallery on the first floor where you uh, have been. That it could have been turned into some commercial use, whether Airbnb and lodging, or maybe a business use or a museum. But it's going to stay residential. I don't know who the buyer is, but I was told by the agents that the buyer does plan to renovate and keep it as a single-family home, not as condos or apartments or anything like that. So it's like it survived again. It survived another turn in the South Loop. Of those 50-plus mansions I mentioned, only seven remain. One of them would be Glessner House. One of them is this. And so it's good news to think that this is going to stay a home. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's a really beautiful property. I mean, uh, I I'm sure there is a ton of people that that like we'll hear that this is sold and is no longer an event space and bemoan it because I know the event I was at, there was like a book out and talking kind of a promotional book of all the different kinds of events they could do there. And I think half a dozen people in the room said, Oh, I want to do a wedding here. I want to do a bar mitzvah for my kids here. <laughs> I want to. So I think people had big plans for the space, but uh, it's a really lovely house and I'm glad it, that it has found a new owner. I mean, so many beautiful details in that house and it's been so well preserved. I mean, I think the owners did such a good job of caring for it and really just keeping those details in such good order. You know what Tracy Bame told me at one point when this was for sale is her her mother and her husband bought it for about $200,000. Wow. They spent over the years, she said, more than $2 million on restoration and preservation. So the $2.3 million that they got in the sale may not be much more than the family has spent on the home over the years. Oh, that's interesting. Very interesting. Well, let's shift and talk about another house with history attached to it, and that is uh, the Emmett Till home. We've talked about that a couple of times here on the podcast. It has been seeking landmark status, but it appears that that has happened. Tell me the latest. It has. This was passed yesterday. It, I mean, it, it was very unlikely not to pass. We Everybody sort of knew that the city would now really embrace this move. The, the landmarking of this building had never quite gone this far. There had been efforts that just sort of fizzled because somebody didn't keep carrying the ball or whatever would happen. But it's been sort of widely acknowledged for the last few years. This has got to be landmarked. It's got to be protected. It's perhaps, it's one of the most significant pieces of property in 
the black history of Chicago and we need to make sure it's protected. So uh, yesterday it took the last step, city council, the Chicago city council uh, landmarked it. And that means that you can really never change the exterior. The interior can be changed and will be by uh, Blacks in Green run by Naomi Davis who are going to turn this into a museum, not only about Emmett Till and his incredibly courageous mother, Mamie, but also about the great migration in general and the tens of millions of blacks who came from the South to Chicago and other Northern cities. Uh, and so it's really, it's it, it, she's got an $11 million program to restore this house and, and sort of memorialize the Tills, as well as create a theater um, and other programs, a garden, and uh, it, it's pretty exciting. And she was jubilant when I called her on the phone yesterday. She was not at the city council meeting. She had other things to do. And when I called her, um, we quoted her at the top of the story. She said, that is friggin' phenomenal. Because, and I think anybody who's paid attention to this house the past few years, I would like to think would feel the same way. Because as you know, from I wrote about it when it sold twice in the past several years, the price went down. It was falling apart the first time it sold. Uh, I think about five years ago when I called the uh, apartment developer who bought it, they had no idea that it had any history attached to it at all. Even though that was well known in the city, they just bought it as as uh, low rent apartments. Mm -hmm. um, and so it really wasn't getting the recognition it deserves. I guess I should say for those who aren't aware why Emmett Till is so important. Mm -hmm. uh, 1955, Emmett Till, who was black, was 14 years old. His mother and others had come from Mississippi uh, in the Great Migration. Emmett leaves his mother, Mamie, uh, from, they lived in the second floor of this building, which was owned by family. It was all relatives living in the building. The upstairs apartment was Mamie and Emmett Till. Emmett gets on a train to Money, Mississippi, his mom's native state. And just a few, year, few days later, he's murdered by white racists in a sensational case that now a lot of people know about at the time. I don't think it was quite as well known, but a white woman made claims of sexual improprieties that some white men extracted vengeance for by killing Emmett Till and throwing his body in a river. Right. And over the course of time, that has become a real turning point in the civil rights movement in part because, as I said, his mother was so courageous. Emmett Till's body was badly disfigured. And if you've seen the pictures, it, it's horrifying. Emmett Till's body is brought back to Chicago for a funeral at the Roberts Temple on the South Side. And Mamie Till, this grieving mother whose child has been murdered, whose body has been mutilated. And she says, keep the casket open. I want the world to see what they did to my baby. And it's it's incredible to think that a mother whose whose child has been treated this way. Sorry, give me a second. Um, I've only had to write this. I haven't had to say it out loud. This is actually uh, it's incredible to think that she could summon that courage. Sure. But what it did is it galvanized not uh, two people who have both said that that is what really inspired them are Rosa Parks and Representative John Lewis. Not to mention thousands, if not millions of others. Photos of the body were published in Jet Magazine, published out of Chicago, and it really sort of galvanized the civil rights movement. And yet this house was a mess for the past several decades. And now as we come to realize that that is, 
an incredible moment in our American history, this house becomes a landmark and is soon to become a museum. And the fact that some previous owners didn't even know the significance of the house, is, is that's yeah. a kind of stunning detail to me, given how significant the house is. So then what is the timeline for all the plans for the house? I mean, that sounds ambitious, a theater, a garden, a museum, all of that stuff. How soon will that be open for people to, to come and, and pay their respects to his memory and, and all that he created? Well, the very first look that people are going to get is um, some virtual tours during the Englewood Summit. The mm-hmm. Englewood Summit is usually in March. It's not clear because of the virtual nature this year whether whether it will happen in March or a little bit later. But um, Naomi Davis, the head of Blacks and Green, was trying to figure out exactly how you know do does she do the tour by just you know do people sign on to something like what you and I are doing right now and she's walking around with her phone. It's it's hard to figure out how to do that sort of thing. But there will be tours that will be sort of the opening. Uh, at the Englewood Summit for people to see this incredible property in West Woodlawn. But uh, down, she also, in the course of the next few months, she says, um, she's going to announce some national and international uh, philanthropy, mm-hmm. some board members. She says all this is lined up. Um, she had the, ca- I mean, this was a cash transaction for the property. So uh, that is one thing that sort of tamps down any skepticism you might have. But uh, there's no official timeline. She's getting it all going. They have to assess exactly what needs to be done and get these names lined up. And I'm told some of those names will be pretty impressive. That's what Naomi told me yesterday. I'm sure they will. I'm sure they will. I mean, there's so much history here. Uh, You can imagine the people who would rally around this at this point, right? Right. 100%. 100%. Well, I'm so glad you wrote about that story and uh, took the time to explain more detail about it because I think it's a really important one and and one that we need to keep top of mind. Yeah. There's hardly a more historic building in in Chicago, really. Yeah. I mean, that's a great point. And and again, I keep going back to this, that that there were owners that didn't know the significance of it at one point is so stunning. And I mean, nothing against them. They didn't know what they didn't know. But I mean, that's shameful in a way that we didn't keep that knowledge available about that house all this time. So, yeah, I think we could do another hour on that and we would need three or four guests, but yeah, I absolutely agree with you. Well, maybe we should, maybe that's a future episode. Okay. Um, Well, it is not ever a daily gist with you without talking about a couple of houses that are on the market or have just recently left the market. So let's start by talking about a uh, designer that is selling his home. This is a gut rehab of a 16th floor condo on Lakeshore Drive. Tell me about it. It was going to be his forever home, but it seems like he's had a change of heart. Yeah. John Robert Wilchin, who's been a designer in Chicago, an interior designer in Chicago since the 1980s. Uh, He was, as an example, he designed the most uh, interiors for condos at the Trump Tower when it was new. Uh, he's done a huge amount of work, uh, primarily in city homes in, in Chicago. And a couple of years ago, I wrote about his condo in the West Loop that he was selling. It was really nice. And at the time, he said, oh, you know, I'm not really sure where I'm going. Well, he bought this. He and his husband bought this at 680 Lakeshore Drive, the old American Furniture Mart. And the idea was they, I mean, they completely transformed it. They moved walls, they dropped, they moved ceilings, they did everything to it because they were going to stay in it for good. They bought it in late 2019. But then during the pandemic year 2020, they spent a lot of time in Palm Springs and decided, they're both retired. They decided, well, let's move to Palm Springs. So now, uh, just 
two years after buying it, not even, and very shortly after rehabbing it, they've got it on the market. It's just a little over a million dollars. And it's really nice inside. It's got these beautiful porcelain, everything you see here is new. The porcelain flooring is new. The ceiling has been completely redone. Wilton's the kind of person, he wants a certain kind of light so that you can always focus it on your art no matter which piece of art you put there. So all, he took out the ceilings and put in a very particular kind of, of a recessed lighting that is easily adjusted for art, that kind of thing. Um, he, it's got crown moldings and base moldings and all these things that just weren't there. New guts, new utilities, and just really pretty. It's really beautifully done. I mean, my eye went right to the kind of the picture of the, of the living room. My eye goes right to that artwork on the back and then yeah. how that yellow and red sort of gets pulled out through the room. That's so creative. You're exactly right. Whenever you have written about a designer that does their house, you can tell they pull out all the stops. I mean, they really do the heck out of it when it's their own home. And this is you know, proof of that. I mean, this is every little detail is, is there and it, every little detail seems very well thought out. It's a gorgeous house. Well, and speaking of pulling something out, let's go back to that photo. Because speaking of pulling something out, I thought this was really interesting. Like me, John Robert Wilton doesn't really want a television in the living room and dining room although that's where a lot of people put them. So what he did, if you look at this picture, you're in the breakfast room and that black screen, of course, is a, a television. It's mounted on an arm so you can pull it out into the living room if you really have to. If you need to watch TV in the living room, you can pull that all the way out around that side wall and be watching TV in the living room. But for the most part, you're in a living and dining room that don't have televisions in them, which is one, something an, uh, an interior designer would do, and two, something that made me very happy because of my feelings about where you put the TV. Because <laughs> you're TV adverse. <laughs> I'm a little persnickety about where the TV goes. Hey, that's good. You're, I mean, you know, that's a, that's a good thing. As long as you're like doing something else with your time, like reading instead of watching TV. Exactly. Sure, he says. <laughs> All right. well, as long as the TV isn't in the living room. Because, right. you know, I need to wear my tux and tails in the living room and a, and a TV interrupts. <laughs> but look at this. I mean, this is just spectacular. There, So they're on the west side. For people who don't know which building it is, it's the one in Streeterville on Lakeshore Drive with the, the blue pyramidal cap on its tower. Uh, it's, it was called the American Furniture Mart. Uh, and the, this condo looks west. On the west side of the American Furniture Mart is a, a full block that is empty from uh, it's owned by Northwestern's medical Northwestern Medicine. They have said they're not planning to build there for at least uh, a while, if ever. So what you're looking at, what you're looking at when you look out the windows is green space, not that common in in Streeterville. And what you get is the western sun just pouring into these windows. So he said, you mentioned that red and orange uh, uh, piece of art in the dining room. He talked about how the whole place just lights up with sunset. Oh, I'm sure. Oh, I bet that's very beautiful. Lovely. Well, all right, let's move to another house we can ooh and ah over. And that is one, we've actually talked about this one a few times, a Lincoln Park penthouse that sells for $9 million. I remember talking about this one because I remember these very interesting window arches. Well, I think we thought it was going to sell much faster though, right? I thought it would sell faster. It also, uh, it, it sold at a rather dramatic discount. They priced it at 13 million. We talked about it when it came on the market at 13 million. It sold for nine. So that's a big come down. 
um, those high arched windows. This is this is the top of a building people who live in Lincoln Park would be familiar with. Uh, it's called 20, LP 2550 or 2550 Lincoln Park West. It's a Lucien Lagrange building from the last building boom. It is right next to the Lincoln Park Lagoon. And this building is often seen in reflections because it's got this beautiful French profile up at the top. It has a mansard roof, which is a French finish with these arches. So then when these people bought the space several years after the building was built, their architects, Wheeler Kearns, had to do something. We've got all these arched windows and the, the walls sort of tilt inward. So they really had to work to make that work as living space. One of the things they did that you can't quite see in the photos, but we have seen in some of the other photos, is it's Venetian plaster. It's It's got like a shine to the plaster so that, uh, so this one would see sunrise. The other one we just talked about sees sunset. As the sun is coming up and the light is coming into the room, you'd get sort of a glint. Uh, but they've also got this incredible sculptural staircase at the other end, beautiful finishes. I mean, throughout, it's really nicely done. And so it sold for nine and a half million this, this I'm sorry, for nine million this week. It had been on the market for 13, but it's it's not only the highest price so far this year, it's a new year, but it had to top the $7.7 .7 million sale in Insdale. We've had quite a year in just three weeks, uh, but it's also the highest a condo has sold for uh, since 2019. It's pretty impressive both to look at and when you talk about the price. I think the ceiling in this place is so interesting because it's not just this one static flat ceiling. It seems like there's so much detail and layers. At some point, the ceiling almost looks like it's sort of floating. It's not touching the wall. It looks like the wall hovers over it. I mean, it's a really kind of, I mean, it. I feel like a lot of times we don't think about the ceiling. We think about the walls and the floors, right. but this one, there's architectural details that include the ceiling, in which is a space that's so often overlooked. Which I think you're going to have to do when you're fill, filling out a space like this. Also, you and I may not think about this because we're not Wheeler Kearns architects. I mean, they're, you yeah. know, they're known for exquisite work. The sure. only time I've actually been in this is before it was built out. I did a TV segment from here when it was raw space and those ceilings were high. I mean, you were, when it was unfinished, it was kind of like you were in a big metal barrel, um, but finishing it out clear, first of all, one of the things you have to do is dampen sound when finishing it out, but they had sort of a blank canvas to do whatever they wanted, which would be a part of the reason the ceilings end up as you're describing them. Interesting. All right. Well, Dennis, what is coming up in the week ahead? We've done these segments. We did how the whole market has done at all prices in 2020, how the million dollar and up market went. So now I'm finishing up the uh, $4 million and up, the, the very top of the market, the top 50 sales of the year. And we'll have that out pretty soon. Sounds good. Well, we will talk about that and more next week. Thanks so much, Dennis. Good to see you. Thanks, Amy. Coming up, an alderman wants to lift the ban on downtown weed sales. We'll talk about that and more right after this. Chicago Comes Back provides resilient leadership insights to help your business move forward from the pandemic. Delivered on Thursdays, this free e-newsletter features up-to-date information and guidance for Chicago's businesses. Sign up at chicagobusiness.com slash Chicago Comes Back. This is the Crane's Daily Gist with Amy Guth. 
No doubt we'll talk a lot more about this next story in the coming months, but here's the gist. The U.S. Census Bureau announced that data for the 2020 census, which is used to reapportion congressional seats across states, won't be available until the end of April, which is four months later than usual. And that means that local mapmakers won't get access to the data they rely on to draw boundaries for Congress as well as their own seats until after the end of July, if not even later. The delay could have serious implications for the 2022 elections and for Democrats' future hold on power. Redistricting maps, done once every 10 years usually by the party in power, have to be submitted no later than July 30th under the state's constitution. Otherwise, mapmaking responsibilities fall to an eight-person bipartisan commission that's hand-selected by the state's four legislative leaders. Ryan Tolley, the policy director at Change Illinois, who leads advocacy efforts for government reform, says the chances of a remap going to a bipartisan commission are likely. A remap commission has only been convened four times since 1970, and it has not generally gone that smoothly, with three of the four instances resulting in disagreements that forced the commission to randomly select a tiebreaker, and the one time they did reach an agreement in 1971, legislative leaders appointed themselves to be backup commissioners, which was then found unconstitutional constitutional. New Jersey has already decided to put off redistricting over the census delay. In Virginia, which has primary elections in June, the state will use a bipartisan commission for the first time, according to the Associated Press. Regardless of how it shakes out, the timing will lead to uncertainty for prospective candidates in 2022. Here's why. If the Census Bureau delivers numbers in early August, mapmakers will face a pretty quick turnaround, given that completing the map usually takes a couple of months. But according to the Illinois State Board of Elections, candidates need to submit petitions to qualify to even make it on the ballot between the end of August and mid-November. But without a map, it'll be tough to gauge much in terms of their viability as a candidate, to know what their districts look like, or even know which doors to knock on. Alderman Brian Hopkins and Alderman Andre Vasquez called for hearings on how to make Chicago's remap process more transparent and equitable. Meanwhile, Latino elected officials, including City Council's Latino Caucus, held a press conference advocating for what they described as a parity map that is, quote, fair to all Chicagoans and accurately reflects the growing Latino community and their contributions to Illinois, saying that they wouldn't support an independent redistricting commission chaired by, quote, individuals who don't live or work in our Latino communities. The University of Chicago's School of Social Service Administration is giving naming rights to Chicago's Crown family after a $75 million gift, which is among the largest in the school's history. The 101-year-old grad school will be renamed the Crown Family School of Social Work, Policy, and Practice. The U of C says the Crown Pledge is the largest ever for a school of social work and brings the family's university donations to more than $100 million. Funding that includes money for student scholarships and endowed professorships in molecular biology and Hebrew studies. Jim Crown, CEO of Henry Crown & Company, is a university trustee and former chair of the board. Besides increasing scholarships and faculty pay, Dean Deborah Gorman-Smith said the Crown gift will allow the school to, quote, deepen our growing engagement on the south side of Chicago, as well as double the size of the master's program in social sector leadership and nonprofit management, which is now in its first year with 20 students. She also said the school's faculty with 32 full-time employees will also be able to expand. Norwegian American Hospital is the latest Chicago safety net hospital to rename itself as the hospital industry evolves beyond inpatient care. 
The 200-bed hospital on North Francisco Avenue has become Humboldt Park Health, a rebranding effort that CEO Jose Sanchez says better reflects the community that the facility serves. The hospital was originally founded by Norwegian immigrants, serving a Humboldt Park community made up of predominantly Scandinavian and German people. Today, Sanchez says it treats, quote, a majority Puerto Rican and Mexican population. Humboldt Park Health is focusing on partnerships in the community that impact health and wellness rather than just illness and emergency care, said Sanchez, including plans to expand its outpatient services in conjunction with federally qualified health center near North Health in Logan Square. A Chicago alderman wants to allow recreational marijuana sales to be a thing throughout downtown, saying it would provide a vital stream of revenue to the city. But Mayor Lori Lightfoot is not quite on board. The city drew boundaries, restricting cannabis sales downtown with both equity and security in mind, hoping to entice companies to put their dispensaries in other Chicago neighborhoods, which wasn't ideal news for dispensaries expecting to cash in on downtown shoppers, said Alderman Brendan Riley of the 42nd Ward, who's introduced an ordinance to lift the ban on downtown sales and says the city is missing out on badly needed revenue. Riley told Cranes, quote, it's been a year since the city allowed cannabis sales and excluded large portions of downtown. Going on to say, quote, a year ago, the administration agreed to revisit this issue after seeing how it went for a year. As I predicted, we have had no quality of life or crime related issues with the dispensaries currently operating downtown. But Mayor Lightfoot came out against Riley's proposal, saying, quote, my views on that have not changed and we're not turning Michigan Avenue into the pot paradise. Riley's proposal, if passed, would eventually make way for up to seven dispensaries downtown. Seven locations initially were authorized by the city for all of downtown, two of which already have opened in River North. But once the state issues the first wave of 75 dispensary licenses, the area could get as many as 14 dispensaries. The reworked district under Riley's ordinance would be bound by Division Street to the north, Lake Michigan to the east, I-55 to the south, and 9094 to the west. As of right now, the boundaries include the west side of State Street on the west, Division Street on the north, Lake Michigan on the east, and the entire loop south to Van Buren. And that's Crane's Daily Gist for now. Our continuous news feed lives at chicagobusiness.com. Thanks so much to our guest today, Crane's residential real estate reporter, Dennis Rodkin. Be sure to subscribe to these conversations on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your audio on demand. And find hashtag Crane's Daily Gist on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn. And let's continue talking there about these and other business stories. Our show is produced by Todd Manley at Earsight Studios. I'm Amy Guth. Thanks so much for listening, and I'll meet you right back here next time.